Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. This is another one of my uh, COVID-19 uh, special episodes. Uh, as you know, I'm putting up some extras, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll mention something about my uh, uh, Venmo app. You know, it's Gangland Wire or some of the other things I'm selling, but don't worry about that till this thing's over. You know, you need to—everybody needs to maintain their money for themselves now, and I'm just happy to give you all some, some extra entertainment because I know you're stuck at home. I need to do a big shout-out for some— recent contributors now you guys know that i said you don't really need to do this but a lot of you are still working so i, I appreciate it uh got bo berger in he got the quarantine kick up thanks bo i appreciate it josh benjamin a shot and a beer or a big cup of coffee thanks a lot josh i appreciate it and then uh steady eddie mark ryan for virus protection last but certainly not least is my good friend casey walls casey's my uh kansas city pal we meet for coffee every once in a while he's been a big supporter of the podcast and and he did a little kick up here for a cup of coffee and a shot and a beer but i really wanted to give a shout out to his wife and some of the other people that are working in the medical profession i i tell you what folks i would not want to be going to work every day at a hospital would you so uh, those people you know they they have my undying gratitude and casey's wife kathy walls is the director of surgery at truman medical center she's been there a long time started out as a uh, surgical nurse a long time ago and and she has always helped the underserved uh, of our community and truman medical center is what we used to call general hospital that's where you go when you don't have any insurance or any money so those people uh, man they're they're getting hit right now big time big time this thing uh, in Kansas City has has hit the poor community, the homeless, much harder than it has those of us that have got means and, and we can get groceries delivered or we can just buy all the groceries we want and they box them up and we run over and pick them up and, and we just stay in. We don't, I don't have to go out and go to work. My wife can work from home. Our uh, social media marketing helper, uh, Basil Terabiche, he's still working double shifts. I left. I checked on him, I think, uh day before yesterday. And uh, he's still working his tail off down there. He said it's crazy in those Dallas hospitals. So probably have other fans out there and, and anybody, really, the first responders. i got several coppers here in Kansas City. A big shout-out to you guys. 
and uh, and all the coppers in Kansas City. So, uh, you know, hang in there. One of these days it'll all be over and we'll be back to normal and we'll be put, I'll just be putting out one a week and uh, uh, maybe even missing one every once in a while because I wanted to play golf and didn't take time to get one edited and, and up. So let's get on to the podcast. I've got Larry Henry from Fayetteville waiting on the line for me to start talking to him. Larry, uh, Larry is a uh, mob blogger for the uh, Mob Museum out in Las Vegas. All he's uh, he's based here in the Midwest. You know, we can uh, we he's working from home, shall we say, for the uh, Mob Museum from Fayetteville, Arkansas. Larry, welcome. Thank you, Gary. Good to see you again. Well, here we are back again, uh, doing some more stuff about the movies. We've done something about Johnny Roselli and the. Uh, uh, Hollywood, and you did something about the Mobtown movie and the one about the Appalachian Convention. And now we're going to talk about Casino, but we're really going to talk about the the screenwriter and the author of the book, Nicholas Pelleggi, because you had an occasion to do an interview with Mr. Pelleggi here recently. Is that right? Yeah, Gary, put a piece together on uh, Pelleggi for the Mob Museum, the Mob and Pop Culture blog. Um, just about, you know, this is the 24th, uh, I'm sorry, 25th anniversary of the movie Casino. It's, it's, it's tough to believe, Gary, that it's been 25 years since it came out. I was in Las Vegas working for The uh, Sun the very next year. I think I started with The Sun in 96. I'd been up in northern Nevada. And, um, man, just tough to believe it's been that long. Yeah, but I talked to Nicholas Pelleggi. He's in New York. He's 87 years old, doing great. In fact, I spoke with him the other day. I've got another piece coming about Lefty Rosenthal's car, and I talked to him again the other day. Um, he's doing fine. He's uh, in, a, in, a, in Manhattan in an apartment, 87, just had his birthday in February, and he said he doesn't go out because of the whole uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, and my so God, yeah. He says he has at, people at age 87. From- Hell, I'm 74, Larry, and I don't hardly go out, but at 87, I sure wouldn't go out. Well, it's just tough times. It's right there in the middle of Manhattan, Gary. Geez, man, it's, oh, yeah. you know, it's, 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 you know, blowing up. So, yeah, so I had a great conversation with him, and I'll say this. He's a really, really nice guy. I have a lot of respect for him. Great journalist. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Anthony uh, DiStefano said the other day on our Las Vegas Mafia uh, History Facebook page that he's a national treasure, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. I tell you what, that guy, uh, he can he can interview those mobsters, which he, he really does his homework. I know he does his homework. He interviews those mobsters uh, directly if he can. And, of course, in Wise Guys, he had Henry Hill. And in uh, Casino, he had uh, Lefty Rosenthal. He talked them into doing uh, extensive interviews with him. You know, a funny little story about that. I don't know if he told you. It's my understanding that... Lefty Rosenthal did not want to cooperate with the casino movie for quite a while. And then Pelleggi got hold of him one day, and he said, you know what, Robert De Niro is going to play your part. And he said, oh, he is. And all of a sudden, everything turns around. <laughs> That's Lefty's ego, isn't it? That is Lefty's ego. <laughs> That's what he told me for the piece he did when I interviewed him, Gary, for the piece on the Mob Museum about, about Pelleggi. He said... Uh, uh, that he flew out to California. He spent a lot of time in Kansas City, in your hometown. In fact, yeah, has he did. He spent several. He spent several days with Bill Owsley going through all his files because he took a bunch of stuff home from uh, the case files. I mean, there there were copies, but he took a lot of stuff home. Uh, Pledge did from Kansas City. Then he got. Then he then he goes out to L.A. But he couldn't get talk, couldn't talk Rosenthal into it. Frank Collada, the hole in the wall. Spilato, Tony Spilato's lieutenant in Las Vegas. 
yeah. dur- during that era. He'd gotten in touch with Collada, who was in the witness protection program, and then goes out to meet with Rosenthal. Rosenthal wouldn't talk. He didn't have any interest in it, even with the potential of some money on the table. Uh, goes back home. Uh, Pelleggi goes back to New York. And then um, when it became known, the trade publications, as you say, Gary, and on the radio and elsewhere, that De, that De Niro was going to be in the in the movie based on the book, Rosenthal called Pelleggi and said, hey, can I meet can I meet De Niro? De Niro flows, flies down to Boca Raton, a little north of Miami. And Rosenthal yeah. told everybody, his daughter, the pool guy, everybody shows up and wanted to meet Robert De Niro. And that sealed the deal. There's nothing like star power, is there? It's a star power, man. And he showed him, uh, Pelleggi told me that uh, that Rosenthal had, I don't know, three, 400 suits. You know, And in the movie, De Niro's always uh, got on a different sort of flashy suit, which was a part of Lefty Rosenthal's sort of signature, uh, you know, look the different, the, the different yeah. nice suits, and so he showed him his suits down there in Boca Raton, and they hit it off. And then Rosenthal called Pledgey back and said, "Let's do it." And from that point on, the story was going to be more about Collada, but from that point on, because Collada had told Pledgey about Tony Spilatro's uh, the love triangle with Jerry Rosenthal and Frank Rosenthal, and Tony Spilatro, and all the problems that it caused with the Chicago outfit. That was going to be the focus of the book until Rosenthal started talking to Pelleggi. Then Pelleggi turned that love triangle, the skimming uh, portion of it, into the focus of the book. Well, that's interesting because, you know, Frank uh, uh, Culotta knows a lot of stuff, but he didn't know a lot about the skimming. They, he was not really in the know on that. Lefty was, Lefty was in the know. Even Tony Splatro was not really in the know on how that worked. Uh, El, uh, we In Kansas City, they were pretty much uh, dictating what was going on and calling out there through that Joe Agosto at the Tropicana. Uh, and, and actually, you know, we got one call from Nick Savella to Lefty Rosenthal telling him he needs to cool it, man. You got to cool it. And Lefty promised he would, and then he didn't. But uh, well, so, but Frank didn't, uh, Collada didn't really know that much about it. He, it's a good thing he got a hold of, uh, got Lefty into the deal, because it would have been hard to, to tell that uh, skimming story without Lefty. It was the thing. And, you know, Jerry Rosenthal was dead by then. Lefty's car blows up in the early 80s. About six months later, Jerry dies in L.A., parent drug overdose. She was dead. Tony Spilatro was dead by the time uh, Pledgey started looking into the book casino. Tony Spilatro and his brother beaten to death uh, near O'Hare Airport in Chicago, taken down to an Indiana cornfield and buried. So there really wasn't much. He couldn't talk to Spilatro, couldn't talk to Jerry Rosenthal. Uh, Yeah, as you say, Gary, uh, uh, Collada was more the street rackets guy. You know, your book, I, I have to say, you know, I got so much out of your book, even in preparing for this interview with Pelleggi, out of your book, Leaving Vegas, the transcripts that, that you have of those phone calls, Gary, phenomenal. And the ebook version linking to the actual audio, it really, thank you for that. It really helped me with the interview with Pelleggi because it was. It was uh, Savella and all the Kansas City guys putting a lot of pressure on Rosenthal because he was running his mouth in Las Vegas doing a TV show and and uh, fighting with Harry Reid on the gaming commission and all that out of your book really was uh, the foundation I needed to when I talked to Pelleggi I'd already had that because of your book Leaving Vegas. Yeah he he hadn't really seen all those tapes because Bill didn't have all those transcripts and all those tapes at that time we didn't get those until two or three years later when I was going to make my movie that's when I moved on getting the tapes. 
because it it takes quite a little bit to get those tapes. You got to file a motion. I, I had since I'm a lawyer, I had to file a motion with the Western District Court, and uh, then the U.S. Attorney's Office has a chance to either uh, agree or, or fight it, and and they didn't fight it because they knew what I was doing. I knew you know I knew the people over there too, and so we got a court order from the uh, Western District Judge to then take to the FBI, and then they gave us the tapes and the transcripts. Which is extremely valuable, because it really does show that Rosenthal, you know, and they flew Alan Glick, the Argent Corp owner, who was, <clears throat> you know, the, the the mob front in Las Vegas, who owned the casino, Hacienda Marina and Fremont and Stardust. And, you know, Rosenthal, of course, really was running them. But, you know, flying Glick, all of this is in your book, flying Glick out to Kansas City, and Rosenthal was there, too, putting pressure Savella comes in and basically threatened him with his life if he didn't sell uh, Argent. I was always surprised they didn't put that little tidbit in the movie. Yeah, you know, it's really... Oh, sorry, Gary, go ahead. It's really dramatic. I mean, uh, Glick testified to it, so, that you know, there was no doubt that it happened. Uh, He he said under oath this happened, and, and, you know, Lefty came to him. They had some kind of a corporate jet that they kept... Well, you know, probably leased or kept ready to go and said, you know, we got to fly to Kansas City in about an hour, you know, just later that evening or that, that afternoon, that evening. They flew to Kansas City and went right to a hotel that's right on the airport grounds and, and take him inside of a room and, and there's Nick Savella waiting for him. And the room's dark except for one lamp, which Nick Savella's positioned over a chair where they sat and licked down and he puts a light in his eyes like the old old school cops used to shine the light <laughs> in the guy's eyes. And, and, you know, what's interesting is he did this before. Uh, it was Roy Lee Williams reported after he started turning state's evidence that in his early meetings with Nick Savella, Nick was mad at him and he did exactly the same thing. He sat him down in a room and shined a light in his eyes and then questioned him and threatened him about something that he wanted Roy to do. And he did exactly the same thing with uh, with Alan Glick. And, it, it, you know, it, it would have been a really dramatic piece and they didn't do it. I, I never did understand that. It just terrible. Hey, but told me when I talked to him, you know, in the book, you're, you're in. He mentions you in this book with your role in uh, going into Tuffy DeLuna, the underboss in Kansas City, into Tuffy's house when you were with the police department uncovering all those records. So I asked him, I said, you know, why did, did you use in the book, he used the real names, you know, Nick Savella, Alan Glick, Rosenthal, Spilatro, Jerry Rosenthal. But in the movie, Martin Scorsese movie that Pelleggi co-wrote the script with, why did you guys use the fictitious names, you know, Ace for uh, the De Niro character for Rosenthal. He said it, it really sort of came down to uh, legal issues to use the real names in the movie. It would yeah. have involved a lot of, you know, financial uh, contracts. Just to use the names would have cost yeah. millions of dollars. It, it's not required in journalistic deals and books and that kind of thing, but for the movies it would have been. So, you know, I didn't ask him specifically about the scene in Kansas City with Glick, which is a terrifying scene. I didn't ask him about that specific scene. As you know, the uh, Mike that was that you've written about and done a lot on Gangland, Gangland Wire website, the Villa Capri, the the, the the wiretap inside the Villa Capri that really exposed the skim in Las Vegas. In the movie, they had it in a grocery store in, yeah. in Kansas City with Scorsese's mom playing the the uh the the, the, the mom there yeah, yeah yeah actually <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, that was that was interesting. But I mean, you know, I understand you got to take a little uh, poetic license to make things smooth and, and flow. Uh, it would have been a little more dramatic to have it in a in a joint, I would think, with these two guys talking. But for whatever reason, they decided to to set it another another seed. But you know, that really did happen. Now, what's interesting about that? They they picked up some tidbits about Las Vegas and money and the Teamsters. Uh, lefty and some names like that genius and a lot of code names but what was what that mike really did was at at the end of one conversation they were going to talk to somebody out in las vegas and there's a phone right there and tuffy luna says to carl cork savella well i don't want to use this phone i got to go find a phone huh and and they, we started following him, and we found that phone. We followed him long enough, and we found that phone. That phone was a gold mine because he was comfortable. the The audio was good. See, the audio was horrible inside that joint, but the audio was crystal clear because you're tapped into the line. and And he was he was on a payphone, and he wanted. There's like a bank of three payphones. He tried to do a different one all the time. He thought somehow that would you know that would keep the FBI off of him. But and and it was crystal clear audio, and they were real open and specific about what they were doing. I tell you, Gary, anybody who wants to uh, really get an understanding of what those guys were really like, you know, the movie characters. Great movie, by the way. I thought the movie was great in every way. You know, I really liked the movie. It w- it was kind of long, but but I really enjoyed the movie. It's uh, it's well done. I love the music that Scorsese always uses. Great music. Uh, it, you know, the only criticism I would have of the movie was it's such a uh, it's a complicated story. Yeah, because you've got all these pieces, and that you have to bring some of it in, and become, it's kind of easy to lose track of. Well, who's this guy? Who are these guys that they go? These mafia guys, and they don't really have a part to play out in Las Vegas. So then your your scene is set in Las Vegas, and these guys are back in Chicago and Kansas City and Milwaukee and Cleveland meeting and talking about this stuff and and then you go out to las vegas and and you have you know fewer characters which can be characters right on the screen that all that for a lot of time and so it's i could see where the uh uninitiated to the story might get a little bit lost but he did a good job of tying all that together and keeping it on keeping people on track yeah it's funny gary because when you see those characters who i agree did it sharon stone you know was great in the movie and, and, and patchy and but it's funny when I listen to your tapes, <clears throat> and um, you know I've listened to them numerous times, and went back again before I talked to Pelleggi for the story for the Mob Museum. Um, man, it, it's just fascinating. I'm, even the the audio you have from the Villa Capri, scratchy like you say with music in the background, but those phone bank audios. Uh, what was it, the Breckenridge? Is that where they were? Breckenridge, yeah, unbelievably yeah. clear, Gary, and to hear. Those guys really talk about it. Joe Agosto from out at the Trop in Las Vegas talking to Tuffy DeLuna on the phones at that hotel. Just so clear. And to hear the discussion about, you know, how angry Agosto was at Rosenthal for showboating and thinking that that was going to undermine the skim that Kansas City was getting from the Trop. It's just really fascinating. I can't say enough about the uh, audio that you have on Gangland Wire and it's all in your book. But it's just really interesting to hear those guys really talk about it. Joe Gosto at the Trop, see, he was the manager of the Follies Berger, the show, because he had, he was a convicted felon. He couldn't qualify for a key light, what they call a key license. If you're in a casino, 
you have to have what they call a key license, and, and they they go into your background like you can't believe. They cover it with a fine-tooth comb looking for anything, and especially mob connections and felony convictions. So he had a felony conviction. They, they'd have been hard-pressed to find a mafia connection, but they would have found that felony, and they just hadn't gotten around to him yet because he was he was in the casino as in the entertainment part of it, not in the gaming part. But he was he was manipulating stuff in the gaming part. Then Lefty was doing the same thing with the TV show and saying he's a food and beverage manager because he <laughs> couldn't qualify for a key license either. And that's why the gaming commission was moving on him. And that's why that that whole scene with uh, was that Tommy Smothers that played the uh, yeah. Gaming Commission played Harry Reid, the, the Harry uh, Reid character, yeah. of the gaming board, and and that's why they were trying to. They knew he was pulling a fast one on him with this crap about having a TV show and being the uh, you know the uh, food and beverage manager, the entertainment manager, and Gusto Gusto was afraid that you know once they did him, then they'd look over at, at Augusto and say, hey, you know. Let's take a look at this guy. He's doing the same thing over there. So that's one reason he was so mad because Lefty was was liable to expose that. Well, yeah, and I love how Augusto, uh, Savella, and, and those audios that you have, Gary, those wiretaps. Uh, Savella's worried about what's the Las Vegas Sun saying about it. What's the Review Journal saying about it? They were worried. I remember one of the tapes you have. Augusto gets on and says, "Yeah, Game and Control Board meeting. Even the Washington Post is there." And so. You know, they were attuned to the negative publicity that that was bringing on those guys. And guys out in Kansas City were upset about it. And um, Augusto, just listening to him on those tapes, how spun up he was about it. It's it's really interesting. And then you've got, I still say, Gary, man, I go back and listen to it all the time on your site. The, the Marlowe House with Carl Thomas, Joe Augusto. Who all was there? Gary, uh, uh, Nick Savella was there. T- uh, Tuffy was there, right? Was was Cork there? I don't remember yeah. who all was there. Right, Carl Savella was there for most of it, but not all. It was huge. Where where Carl Thomas, the Las Vegas casino executive, as as Ned Day, uh, uh, the journalist back in Las Vegas in those days, uh, reported, he was seen as a stand-up Las Vegas. You know, leader of the business community for 10, 15 years. And here he is at the Marlowe House in Kansas City with the Kansas City uh, upper echelon and Augusto discussing how the skim works, man. And that really sort of blew up the whole thing. Um, it's just fascinating to hear those guys talk about it. And one something I didn't really go into because you, you kind of have to keep your focus a little bit narrower, uh, as I said about the whole movie Casino is, is – Get too broad, then people get lost. Well, a week before this, Carl Thomas was in Chicago for the wedding of uh, Alan Dorfman's daughter. He was real close to Alan Dorfman and had been for a long time because he goes clear back to the Circus Circus. He, he tells a story on those tapes about how he was uh, taking money right in front of one of the gaming commissioner, uh, the gaming control investigators named Bybee who was real well-known and, and kind of a ball buster. And he said, man, Bobby was standing there watching me. He said, I was sticking money in my pockets. And Nick Savella <laughs> says, yeah. He said, sometimes you just you do something right out in the open. It's the best thing to do. And he said, yeah. He said, I had a, I had a commitment to make there at the Circus Circus. And, and so then I started investigating that. And so the Circus Circus got a Teamsters loan about that time to do a big uh, addition and, and remodeling the Circus Circus. And and he was real close. He was getting money for Dorfman because Dorfman, you know, made sure they got that loan. It's insane. And he was bragging about it 
<clears throat> just going uh, Carl Thomas in the Marlowe house and in that wiretap yeah. conversation while spaghetti was cooking on the stove and, and all that stuff, <laughs> just bragging about it. Yeah, and then and then uh, and then what was it where Nick Savella said uh, he was worried because because Carl Thomas said, "Look, some of your guys are going to skim from you." I've had this guy with me. He had a little place Carl Thomas did next to Circus Circus, which is still there by the way, called Slots of Fun. And uh, that's where his office was and all that stuff. He said, I've, yeah. had, I've had these guys with me for a long time. And, yeah, they're going to take a little off the top. So uh, then Savella calls for a moratorium on skimming at the <laughs> yeah. trot to see, wants, to see. He wants to see if somebody's stealing from him. <laughs> hey, that's all great. But, you know, one of the things, and you mentioned at the beginning, Gary, one of the things I really admire about Pelleggi and, you know, you and I had a private conversation the other day on the phone about uh, what I really admire about you, Bill Friedman, friend of ours out in out in Nevada who ran a couple of uh, casinos in Las Vegas and now is a historian. Just the, the, the level of research uh, and, and, and factual information, that's one of the things I really admire about Pelleggi. You know, he came up as an AP, Associated Press reporter, worked for New York Magazine, really dug into the mob over the years. And didn't really, you know, when you read his books, Wise Guy, about Goodfellas, about Henry Hill, and you read Casino, you know, he quotes law enforcement sources uh, directly, yeah. but he also quotes the bad guys. You know, he's he, he develops a relationship. He, he's not judgmental about, he just wants the story, and he wants a good dramatic story that has a lot of elements to it, you know, crime and love and and tension and and all that stuff, and he gets that because he's so good at 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 working his sources, whether they're on the law enforcement side or the other side of of that whole dynamic. And I think that's one of the strengths of Wise Guy, his book about Henry Hill, Pledgy, Pledgy's book about Henry Hill, and then his book yeah. ab- about uh, Rosenthal and those guys in Casino. You know, you could see uh, Frank Culotta's kind of influence on that movie in a couple of places, if you remember. They talked about how they were. Uh, they'd find out about high rollers from the uh, staff at the at the hotels, and then they'd go hit their rooms and and had all these tipsters out there. That was that was Frank Culotta's part in it. He was that hole in the wall gang. They were they were robbing those uh, high rollers that were down in the uh, casinos, or they'd be out to dinner or something. They'd know that they probably had a bunch of money and jewelry and stuff in their room and. And he was uh, that that was their thing. And then the second thing, of course, is when he murdered that. Actually, the guy's real name was Jerry Lesnar for uh, Tony Spilatro. And, and that's that's the greatest story I ever heard, man. And I think I've told this on the podcast before. And I know you've heard it where he said he's sitting there in a chair. He's a technical advisor on the movie set, sitting there in a the chair. And Scorsese's directing that shot where they're going to kill this guy. And it's it's that guy that he killed and and i guess scorsese didn't realize that he's the one who killed him and scorsese's not happy with the way it's being it's going down the scenes being shot and the way they're doing it and scorsese i mean um, frank galata said hey he said uh, i can tell you what's wrong scorsese looks at him you know like well who are you and he says <laughs> You're doing it all wrong. He said, well, how do you know? He said, because I'm the one that did it. <laughs> Scorsese supposedly said, hey, get that man a costume. And he plays himself doing that murder. I don't know. That's uh... <laughs> that's funny. That's funny, Gary. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you talk about a guy going for reality. <laughs> that Well, that whole scene, which is, you know, in, in Pelleggi's book about, uh, and I know you've had this and you've had Collado on your show, how he, he put those uh, – 
Oh, what do you call the where you take half the half the load out of the bullet so half it doesn't load, make as so much noise? Quieter, yeah. yeah, yeah. But then it didn't do the job. He kept shooting the guy <laughs> yeah, in the head. Exactly. Had to ended up strangling him. I don't remember the details, Gary, but I think strangling him with a electrical cord and threw him in the pool or something. But yeah, oh, unbelievable scene. <laughs> yes, it was. Hey, I gotta it was ask. <laughs> it was. I gotta ask you too about uh, the book Casino, Gary, where 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 uh, Pelleggi talks about you, and he says. Uh, in the book, he says he, uh, Pelleggi said he thinks the two things that probably ran the mob out of Las Vegas was that those Marlowe House conversations with oh, yeah. Carl Thomas and Augusto and, and the hierarchy in, in Kansas City, the mob. But he said also the notes that Tuffy let, uh, DeLuna left behind in his house. And he talks about how you, Pelleggi in the book Casino, talks about how you were one of the uh, authority figures, uh, you know, one of the law enforcement figures who went in and uncovered all that. What was that all about? My part wasn't quite as dramatic or as romantic as what you might think, but uh, you know, we uh, each each member of the intelligence unit had been working on this case for a long time with the FBI, doing all these surveillances, and God, we sat out between that and trying to keep keep them from killing this other mob guy, Carl Spiro. We we worked I don't know how many hours, uh, day and night on on the mob guys in one one capacity or the other. And so each one of us got in a police uniform and went with the FBI just so there's no mistake about, you know, because there's mob war going on at the time. Uh, and I know uh, Joe Spiro had ambushed Tuffy Luna outside of his house. He's getting out of his car, walking in. He pulls up in front and takes a shot at him with a deer rifle not too long before this. And so we know this mob war is going on. They don't want any mistake, and they don't want any, you know, Tuffy's friends or somebody coming by and seeing these, you know, these people without uniforms, with no police around, uh, inside his house. And and so uh, we we were there in uniform, but we also helped them, and because they they searched, we we got in there about I want to say eight o'clock at night. We timed it when uh, the guy, um, the singer, uh, Carl Caruso had a junket coming back from Las Vegas with the uh, what they called the sandwiches with the with the packages of money. So when he landed and they grabbed him and, and pulled the money off of him, they sent a signal out to all the other crews that were standing by outside these guys' houses and we hit their houses and we just you know, we didn't really hit their houses. We just went up and knocked on the door and they came to the door. It's not like a a, a drug dealer that we're hitting here and you know, they came to the door and opened it up and, and Tuffy opens the door and, you know, Shay Airy, who he knew, the FBI agent, and he said, Hey, he said, We've got a search warrant here and he said, Okay, you know, and we go in and God, they brought about 10 agents in, and we were there till 4 o'clock in the morning searching that house. It was unbelievable. But Tuffy, he was, uh, his wife was getting upset, and he told her, he said, Sandy, he said, just settle down. He said, uh, make these officers some coffee. <laughs> some <big> coffee. <laughs> his son was a teenager, and he started getting upset, and, and he told his wife, he said, you know, call so-and-so and have them come and get him and take him somewhere. So pretty soon some young man showed up, and he took his son off somewhere else, and we searched and searched, and I remember Tuffy said, "I'll never forget this one as long as I live." He didn't put this in the um, in in the book because I where he got that information from was uh, was really he didn't really talk directly to me. He got it secondhand, but it's you know everything he said that you know about me and that search was was good. But Tuffy said, uh, "Told Shay said Shay said uh, you might as well go down to my office. That's where the good stuff is, and that's where wow. they found in his office desk. He knew they were going to get to it." Wow! On his office desk, they found all these notes, and 
it's just it was amazing. After they decoded them, now he held a job to decode them, but they decoded them and matched them up with all the uh, wiretaps. He was tracking his trips right to Las Vegas to get reimbursed or something, right, Gary? When he talked about going out to Las Vegas on a certain date, he wrote down the date and he wrote down how much it cost and how much he paid out in tips and all that kind of thing and who he met with and code. And he went to Chicago once and who he met with and it was all in code. And, you know, he got some instructions from Nick Zavella to send some money up to Iupa up in Chicago. And he wrote that down in code and, you know, like supposed to send him 25000 So he just put sent twenty two. 25 or something along those lines. Well, 22 is the code for IUPA, and 25 was the code for 25,000. It, was, uh, it wasn't a real uh, elaborate code system. So all that was it. He, he said, go to my desk in his office or whatever, and there it all was. I mean, it was just, right there. just all written down, huh? Wow. Yeah, and, and this variety of little notes so he could remember what he'd done when he'd done it, you know. Nothing, no, no firearms, no... Nothing like I think that. They, they found a gun or two in there, just kind of your normal kind of firearms. They found a uh, they found a beeper, uh, a, a what we call a tracker tracking device that they put up underneath his car, and he'd found and he just had it <laughs> there in his bedroom. They found a couple of revolvers, just kind of you know like home defense kind of revolvers, nothing fancy. They did find a, uh, directions to how to make a silencer and directions on how to wiretap somebody. So. <laughs> I don't know if he read them or thought he was going to make himself a silencer or not. I, I know during this time they were calling out to Las Vegas trying to get a special gun, two or three of them, because, what they call it? They called it a, uh, I can't remember, they called it some kind of a device, and they said, you know, if we use one, we've got to get another one. So we want two or three of them there, and we figured out there was some kind of a special gun to use, and it's a long gun. It must have been some kind of a, a long scoped long gun that was specially built that you couldn't trace because they were trying to kill this Carl Spiro at the time. And, and uh, but nothing like that. But he was, you know, he they were in the middle of this mob war, so that's probably why he had that silencer directions. Figured he might want to make a silencer. Wow. What, what whatever happened to all those notes and all that stuff that was in his? I, I assume it's in the FBI. Uh, yeah, uh, storage somewhere. Good yeah. grief, man! That would be something uh, to get in the museum if if if, if that's still yeah, out I there. Yeah, I know. I know they'd love to have it. That's what uh, one guy, not uh, Jeff, but the other kid that uh, started out being the executive director. I met him once a long time ago, and he was asking me about those. I said, you know, I don't know. You're gonna have to figure that one out. I, I, that- I figured out how to get the wiretaps, the <laughs> tapes, and I gave them. They wanted some tapes and uh, for their little exhibit, and I gave them what they wanted for that. But uh, well, those uh, notes basically, notes. those notes basically undid, and all that's in that book. That's what I love about that book. In your book, Leaving Vegas, that era, Gary, which you know, as you and I are saying in that movie, really, and it really back then, you know, back then in the mid '90s in in Las Vegas, early '90s, mid '90s, you know, from from when you were involved in Kansas City in the '70s and and through all that, you know, those guys. Savella, Spalatro, Ioup I- up in Chicago. Those guys were, you know, they were mobsters. There, there was no. Um, the Godfather had been out in other mob movies, but they weren't as studied as much as they are now. Like Tony Spalatro, he was just kind of a bad guy in Las Vegas, you know. And and Lefty Rosenthal, you talked to a lot of the media people who covered Rosenthal. He was arrogant and off-putting and. 
you know, all that sort of thing. And now, um, over time, 25 years since that movie's come out, just a lot, a lot more has come out about them that sheds a whole new light on how they were and who they are. And so I, I don't know, uh, Gary, but I just think it's endlessly fascinating because there's more and more that you learn about these people as time goes by and just how much influence they had in those casinos, how they control those politicians and, and officials and judges. Oh, it's, yeah. it's, 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 I mean, those guys were pretty pervasive. One thing they didn't really go into either and was was huge was the control they had over the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and, oh, yeah. and all that, that billion-dollar Teamsters pension fund. Yeah. I mean, they didn't really talk – they talked about it a little bit, but that was that's a whole other story there. And they turned Roy Lee Williams, who was going to be the next international president after uh, Fitzsimmons, and as a result of that, another huge blow to organized crime that people don't really think about because it's not so evident is the government took over the Teamsters, put it into receivership, appointed trustees, kicked out all the officers, and made them have new elections. And monitored those elections and and changed the the whole thing the way they 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 ran for office uh, to run the the Teamsters Union and and cleaned it up. Now you know they cleaned it up, but about that point in time, the the uh, Teamsters also started losing their own power. The, the mob lost the Teamsters, but the Teamsters started losing their own power because of the changing in deregulation of the trucking industry, and and that all changed too. But but that was a, that was a huge story that not really it's it's kind of boring you know there's not much to it there's no uh, sex drugs or rock and roll with putting the teamsters into trusteeship and and uh, changing all the officers well yeah well, and, and, and the story there is you know which is still popping you and I have talked about it is the whole mystery over Jimmy Hoffa you know but Pelleggi, by the way Nicholas Pelleggi, the author of Casino and Wise Guy and all that Goodfellas was uh executive producer of the Irishman and of course that brought the whole Hoffa thing back into play over recent months yeah. Dan Modea <clears throat> the foremost expert on Hoffa written about Hoffa over the years uh, uh, author and journalist living in Washington now and Eric Sean of Fox News have gone out and interviewed some people and, and, and um, have a location that they're Convinced is the location where his body is at a, at a, at a landfill in New Jersey that was controlled by some uh, mob associates. Yeah, I mean that Hoffa story endlessly fascinating, and those guys, you know, through the Teamsters, uh, got inside those Las Vegas casinos and called the shots. Up until you know, uh, Gary, you and I have talked about this. Up until the corporations came in, and you know, Splatro was killed in the mid '80s. Corporations came in and began. Uh, buying up the casinos. Howard Hughes had come in before that, bought up casinos. Then the corporations came in. And shareholders are interested, uh, you know, in 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 those places being run a different way than the mob ran them, obviously. And then over time, then Herbie Blitzstein was killed in nineteen what ninety six, ninety seven, and that sort of ended that entire era when Blitzstein was killed. So it was going on for a long time, and it was all. Uh, all tied in together with all that stuff that really got kicked off with what Nick, Nicholas Pelleggi played uh, played up so well in in Casino with with the Chicago guys in the Argent Casinos, the Kansas City guys in the Tropicana. They were just how, how much was it, Gary? You were telling me that uh, Caruso, the singer who was the, the the courier from Las Vegas to Kansas City. What were you? I think you were telling me one time they opened up his jacket 
they were searching him down, or maybe Bill Owsley said this. I forgot who it was at the Kansas yeah, City Mafia Film Festival. They were patting him down, couldn't figure out where the money was. It turned out he was in his uh, sport coat. Probably was like, what, $80,000 or something? Yeah. Gary, what was the... As Bill, Bill said so colorfully, he said, you know, I thought it would be like a secret compartment or something. He said, uh, I told him to empty his pockets. He said he, he reached on the inside coat pocket of his sport coat and took out 40000 in one pocket, and he reached in the other one took out 40000 in the other pocket and <laughs> laid it on the table. <laughs> That's but, when somebody jumped on the radio and said, okay, hit him. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was just one trip with the skim, what, I guess from the trop, because it was the Kansas City guys. Right, it was but. just a trop, yeah. We, see, they had another route, had different people getting that money from the, which is a lot more money, from the Stardust, as it went straight, straight to Chicago, then they cut it up and sent Milwaukee their piece. Milton Rockman from Cleveland drove up to Chicago to get his piece, and they had uh, Nick Savella had a nephew named Anthony Schiavola, who was actually a Chicago Police Department sergeant at the time, and his son was a patrolman. But Anthony Schiavola would uh, get Nick's money, Kansas City money, and bring it down. And then Nick was sharing a little bit of the Tropicana back up with Joey Iupa, because, and he didn't really have to, but it kind of tells you about how Nick knew he needed to keep Chicago happy. And, and so he shared with that with, uh, with uh, Joey Iupa. Now, see, he did not use the Teamsters money or any influence from the Chicago outfit to get that stream of skim started from Tropicana. He and Joe Agosto did that all on their own. So he didn't really owe it to Iupa, but he did it anyhow. And it was based on some Kansas City guys that Agosto knew? Is that how Nick uh, Savella got Agosto in the trop? The genesis of exactly, he got a job there. People seemed to like him. He's an old con man who can make people like him. And he got a job there, and he got in with the management, and, and they had one lady who was Mitzi Stauffer Briggs, who was basically an, an heiress and not really, you know, a hard-nosed, hard-boiled casino owner. And, and she liked Joe and thought, you know, he did a good job. And there was another guy named Deal Gustafsson, and they were having money trouble. And Joe, uh, that's, that's kind of how they really got in. Joe promised that he could get him a Teamsters loan, and he was trying for a Teamsters loan, but then... Joe and Nick Savella kept jerking him around and making sure that he didn't get the Teamsters loan until he got the skim started. So, so he was he was he let Joe hire Carl Thomas and and looked away, and Mitzi Stuffer Briggs was not really looking that close. And the other two owners, the the Dumani brothers, were real estate people and they weren't really active management in the casino. They were owners, but they weren't active in what was going on. The, this deal Gustafsson was. And, and then Joe sucked him in. Here's how these con artists work. They get you on the hook and they get you in. Then they get you to do a little something. So they he showed him how to kite checks at different banks through, uh, around the Midwest so he could keep his payroll afloat and get his payroll uh, every month. And then some more money would come in and he'd cover those checks. And then something else would come up. And, and so they'd make a deposit in one bank. And so, but the check, that check was going to be bad, but then they could go ahead and pay their payroll or pay some bill. And, and then when that check bounced, then it'd give them another few days for float. And then they'd maybe cover that check. And, and he was kiting these checks and he ended up catching a case. Actually, the feds uh, busted him for uh, check fraud too. He and Joe both, they had that pending whenever the whole casino thing came down. 
And Augusto was, uh, Savella kept him on a short leash uh, at, at the trial. But at one point, was Augusto trying to put together a deal to buy Argent with some guys and got crossways with the Chicago guys a little bit? I guess Lefty got in the middle of that, Gary. He, he was. He was. Uh, I mean, Nick knew he had to get Chicago's permission for him to do that. Augusto was promising Tuffy De Luna that he had a couple of rich people out there that would back him, and they'd make a bid at least on the Stardust. There's four casinos in the Argent Corporation, and they'd make a bid, we understand it, on the Stardust. At least they wanted that Stardust because that was the big money. That was the flagship. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And these two guys that uh, that he had, the, the Dumani brothers, were real wealthy. And uh, then there was another oil man. I cannot remember his name now, but Joe claimed that he had him all ready to go. And they were going to present a package to try to buy this. And Chicago, turns out Chicago didn't really want him to do it. Chicago had their own ideas about what was going to happen when Glick actually sold out and left. Uh, So he never quite got it done. In the meantime, and Lefty, Lefty knew if Kansas City got it and Joe had any influence, he'd be gone. Yeah. The next day, Nick Savella was going to boot him out. With Chicago, he felt like he could hang on. And so he kept... You know, throwing up roadblocks to Joe and and making sure that that Joe's offer, the 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 consortium that Joe was putting together, were not going to be viewed in a good light by innuendo and things like that. So, and then all of a sudden there was a bust over at the, uh, I think the oh god the, the Aladdin. I think some headlines came out that there were some Detroit mob guys that had influence over the Aladdin. And uh, the headlines hit, and and he told Tuffy one day, well, his backers were getting cold feet after those headlines. And and I remember Tuffy said, well, what do you mean, man? He said, it doesn't have anything to do with us. Joseph said, well, I don't know. You know, they're they're back. They're wanting to back out now. They're nervous. Just all the bad press. Well, that's why, you know, Casino, the movie, and and the book, too, starts out with the car bombing, Lefty's car bombing outside that Tony Roma's which later was closed, but outside that Tony Roma's when Lefty's car blew up, I mean, you think just the way Lefty was creating so much noise and threatening the skim in general, not just at the Stardust, which obviously the Chicago folks, it would have hurt them, but also Augusto on your tapes, Augusto is expressing that Lefty's high-profile antics could threaten the skim at the, at the Trop too, and so... So you think the Kansas City guys might have been behind that bombing huh, of Lefty's car? You know, that that would be my opinion. You know, I, I at the time, at the time we had several bombings and attempt bombings going on. So Kansas City crime family definitely had a bomber working for them because we know two of them they didn't go off right, and there was enough captured by the crime scene investigators to show that this was the same bomber. 
And so they had some guy during those years that was working for him was doing car bombs and remote control car bombs. These mob guys, they don't really, they want to be careful about collateral damage. They know if they kill a civilian when they set off a bomb to kill a mob guy that there's going to be hell to pay. And they aren't like the Sicilians. The Sicilians have set it off and set off a truckload of, of, of dynamite just to get one guy, and it doesn't matter who's around. But these guys in, in the United States do not like collateral damage, and so they had a guy who could do all that and, and not leave collateral damage, which there was no collateral damage with lefties, and, you know, it was just bad luck. Lefty just got lucky. And, and you know, they probably were suspecting that he was a snitch because by this time people were getting indicted and being named in, in indictments and as suspects, or not suspects, but uh, as uh, conspirators and, and lefty. He's in the middle of all of it and nothing. He's not even getting a subpoena. So what do you think? Like you told me, Gary, he, he, he wasn't even... Uh... He wasn't even brought before the grand jury, right? I mean, he he at that time. So so Savella and those guys. In fact, it's on it's on your tapes, Gary, that you have on those wiretaps where Savella, uh, either, either I don't remember whether it's Tuffy DeLuna, Gary, or uh, or Nick Savella. One of them talking to Augusta. I think it was Nick Savella. You'll you'll it of course Nick. know. He said he's he, snitching. He's got to yes, be he has snitching. He's snitching. Yeah, in that law yeah. office, right? In that in that law office that uh, he would make some of those phone calls from. So they strongly sensed he was. Snitching them off, right, Gary? They were. He suspected that. They, they definitely did. Now, now, Tuffy would kind of stand up for him. Said, "I don't think he really would do that." I remember one sentence was, "He would not hurt la familia, familia in total." Hmm. So, I, you know, he he kind of stuck up for him, but Nick was really suspicious. And then later, Jane Morrison, Jane Ann Morrison at the RJ, and and you know. Uh, uh, through sources confirming over time it came yeah. out that he was a uh and Pelleggi told me that too Pelleggi told me Gary that he thinks uh uh Rosenthal was a uh, top echelon informant even back to his Chicago days Pelleggi's Pelleggi's take is that he was a top echelon informant for a long time for the FBI yeah my, my opinion on that is he you know he was in Chicago and Really earned uh, the respect and the uh, the favor of Anthony Accardo because he could he was such a good handicapper he he was giving these guys you know uh, good names to bet on on sports things you know and he also he also got convicted of uh, bribing a basketball player back east but when he was young but anyhow he he went down to Florida now I found an old report that said something about he was going to he, – he had left Florida. He went to Las Vegas, and they said some – made some statement about return to the status, and then it had – another sentence had the top echelon informant in it. Hmm. It was kind of a slip on their part to, to not blank all that out. So I believe, and I've heard this someplace else, that he was doing some informant down there in Florida – but they didn't. He was jerking them around as as lefty was want to do. Is he may act like he's snitching, but he's going to jerk you around. I mean, those guys. I've had those guys. They, you know, they're they're acting like they're snitching and using you to to uh, take care of their competition sometimes. And but they're not really telling you anything that's good that that you really want to know. So and he would be a master at that. So I I think when he went to Las Vegas. 
he was he went back in the top echelon informant program. See those FBI guys. They when she exposed that. When I interviewed, I interviewed two agents from out there, and, and neither one of them would admit it because I, I I was suspecting it myself at the time. Jane Ann hadn't come up with the uh, that article yet, and they would not admit it. And I'd ask Bill Owsley about it, and he would not admit it. Uh, here's the deal on that: even after he's dead, they wouldn't admit it. Hmm. Because they make a, a promise to these people that will never ever front your name out unless you do something where it gets it goes out in court, and, or you start going around telling people. Because these people they leave behind extended families, and, and you could put their family at risk, or at least put their family at uh, uh, you know being in danger of being ostracized in the community. Uh, it, when if they uh, admit even after they're dead that somebody's a top echelon informant. I told Bill Owsley that I said, there's this newspaper reporter out in Las Vegas for the Review and Journal, and she printed an article that said she had FBI sources that confirmed that he was a top echelon informant, and he just looked at me and, and just gave a disgusted look and just said, well, I don't know, and, and <laughs> that ended that conversation. And I understand that. You do not ever want to out anybody. Because the next guy that comes along, they see that, and they're not going to do it. Because these people leave extended families behind. Yeah, and he's still got Rosenthal's kid. He's got three kids. Uh, well, mm-hmm. Jerry, I guess Jerry had a had a child with uh, the guy played by the Woods character in the movie. Correct, Gary? And then, then they had right. two kids. So, so there are three you know, kids in that extended family still out there, uh, uh, you know, in the community. So, so, well, this has been great, Larry. I really, I really enjoyed it too, Gary. And I tell you, man, it's, uh, I know you're waiting for it too. I'm waiting for, uh, baseball to start again. I know <laughs> yeah. you, I know you're ready for the <laughs> Maybe Royals. Maybe you can come up, like do our mob seven, but who knows right now? Well, bets are off for everything. I know. I got people asking me about it on, uh, we're I talking know. about just doing a little pizza parlor thing, making it a low key deal where we yeah, eat a little pizza. You can't even say that right now. I know we're thinking June 27th, but we'll just have to see. It's, we it's uh, every day is a uh, question mark, Gary. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Now, by the way, so in that along those lines, I heard the latest thing they're thinking about is playing baseball in empty stadiums in, in Arizona. So who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, right yeah. now we're looking at June 27th, but who knows? Notice on Saturday afternoons, every channel has, I'm not a big sports watcher, but every channel has some old uh, sports game on it. I know, <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> I've been getting caught up on my Netflix, Ozark and, and all oh, that yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> Here's one. Uh, if you like spy stories, The Night Manager is great. Is it good? It, it is good. The Night Manager is really good. I haven't seen it. I'll check it out. <laughs> I've been watching Zero Zero Zero, the one on Amazon Prime about the cartels, and then uh, Narcos Mexico, man, very good. Yeah, I've seen that. I've, I've gone through that one. I haven't seen that uh, Zero 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 yet. I may have to get around to that. I've been recording podcasts like crazy here in the last week, and then editing. You know, each time I'm, this is almost an hour, and you know that's going to take me about two hours to edit. So well, I'll stop talking, <laughs> Gary. I appreciate it, man. As always. All right, Larry. Thanks a lot. See you, Gary. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Well, that was a fun interview with my friend Larry Henry. Lives in Fayetteville, Arkansas, but he's the mob and popular culture blogger for the Mob Museum out in Las Vegas. He was a newsman out in Las Vegas for a long time, and he, he is a good guy. I've known him for quite a while. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that 
might be PTSD connected to your service time, call the local vet center or the hospital in your area. But if you don't want to do that, there's a national hotline, 1-800-273-8255, and be sure and press 1 if you're a vet. There's a website that has a lot of really good resources, www.ptsd.va.gov. So remember, this is a COVID-19 virus episode. Don't worry about hitting me up on any Venmo or or buying anything or making any donations right now. You know, after this is all over, why, uh, you know, you, you can make up for it if, if you've never lost your job or <laughs> you uh, when your stock market, when your 401k comes back. But uh, I, I, that's why I'm adding this in, that uh, I've got my two mob movies out there, each for $1.99 on Amazon. Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, or Gangland Wire. I've got my book that Larry talked a lot about. Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. And if you want to get the Kindle version, the uh, actual wiretaps are linked to that. Folks, um, stay safe, stay healthy, and we will talk to you later. Good night. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.